You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. And what's more, uh, I'm about to break every single rule of public speaking in one sermon. You guys ready for this? You didn't wake up asking for that today, but here it is nevertheless. All right, so here's what's going to happen. Just humor me here. All right, JD's got this panicked look on his face. It's okay, dude. We're fine. I'm just going to do a little stretching. All right, so I'm going to sit over here uh, so this doesn't look more sus than it already is. Here's what I'm going to ask of you, okay? So just humor me on this. So what I'm going to do, I want to ask you guys to sit all the way back, sort of against the back of your chairs. Let me out here. Apologize to my leg crossers. I feel your pain. I'm going to ask you to uncross your legs. Sort of put them right here. All right. And then put your arms either on the armrest or off to the side. Just kind of leave, just not in front of you anywhere. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of arch forward, bend forward, getting a nice back stretch together until like your torso is as close to your legs as possible. Just kind of crunch forward. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold this here together. I'm just going to talk for a little bit. I want you to see if you can hold it longer than I can, all right? So, um, like a lot of these sort of other cultural things, um, I've been getting really into the uh, Marvel series on Disney+, Plus, like the miniseries that they've been coming out with. Um, It's like these, like, six-episode stories, right? These six-episode, like, comic book superhero stories. Um, And they they get a little bit formulaic, just like everything else is kind of the Hollywood vein. Um, and I've, I've noticed something really interesting with those. So you would think that like the first episode or the last episode would be like the emotional highlight of those series. Because um, like the first episode, you got to catch people's attention, make them want to watch the rest of it. Um, and by the way, if this starts to feel like super uncomfortable, by the way, you, like you can sit up. Don't feel like you got to like seriously injure yourself to try to hold it for as long as you can. Um, <laughs> So like, you think it'd be the first episode, or you think it'd be the last episode, because it's like, that's the big finale, it's the climax, they gotta like leave everything else on the table. But what I've been finding is it's like, they're usually six episode miniseries, right? And then the first four episodes, they sort of bring in plot elements, they introduce storylines, progress them forward kind of in a slow way. And then the fifth episode, the second to last episode, You know, there's still stuff to come. There's still the finale afterwards. But the fifth episode, stuff gets real. Like, there's a twist. There's a plot drop. Something just completely out of left field happens. um, And everything changes for the, like, for the better. You can tell that, like, for the protagonist, for the world of the show, um, things are never going to be the same. Um, And so even though there's still story to be told, it's not the end, we can tell that everything we've been reaching up to up to that point has reached a conclusion. Um, And so we've been going through the series, or we've been going through the Gospel of Mark over the last few weeks, um, right, throughout the semester. Um, Last week, Pastor Nick brought us to that sort of second-to-last episode of Mark, or at least the beginning of it, right? So Jesus is is faced with the council. Um, He's he's been betrayed. He's been arrested. Um, He is now being questioned as to, like, whether or not um, the people's wish that he be crucified, that he be killed, um, is legally justified. And at one point, you know, the the high priest straight up asks him, who are you? Are are you the son of God as these people say you are? And Jesus finally comes to it, says, I am. You know, we've, we've we've had these sections, right? First, oh, he's a healer who has some interesting ideas about the Sabbath. Uh, then he's a teacher who uses these, like, parables and kind of these, these stories, these, these allegorical stories to talk about the kingdom of God. Then he's a prophet who's talking about, oh, the temple's going to be destroyed um, and rebuilt, and also, you know, he's going to die. Um, is just sort of a little detail he's thrown in there. And now it's all leading up to this, right? He's not hiding it anymore. He's not concealing anything anymore. He says that he is the son of God. And, of course, he gets accused of blasphemy, um, and now he is being led away um, to be executed for that. Okay. If you haven't sat up yet, oh, wow, I'm impressed. I thought for sure I'd look up and be like, oh, geez, nobody's holding that. All right. <laughs> but thank you for humoring me on that. Just so we had a little bit of uh, calisthenics in this morning. <laughs> so Jesus has been sent since his death, right? We've gotten our twist, right? Jesus has finally said, I am the son of God and... and, and this is, what I'm, this is what I'm here to do. 
he's, he's being led away, right? And we're going to now see the implications of those things. He's going to be led away to be crucified, right? So if you've been following Christ for any amount of time, um, you know the story very well. And even if you haven't, right? Even if you're just sort of a, a, a student of ancient history, it's, it's accepted, um, regardless of, of the reasons why that there was a man named Jesus Christ, that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was killed by crucifixion. Right, it's a known tale. Um, the implications for what that means for our, for our eternal life after death um, are an Easter sermon. If you're not sure what those are, I want to talk to you about that after this. Um, but there are powerful implications because as, as we've been saying over and over again as we look through Mark, we've been looking at two fundamental questions that Jesus answers for us throughout this gospel. Who is Jesus? What are the characteristics um, that make him who he is? And how do we use that information to live a life with, like, and for Jesus. Right, and the way that Mark portrays this story, the details he chooses to include, um, his narrativization of, of this, frankly, like really terrible, awful, uncomfortable event in history, says a lot, number one, about who Jesus is and why he's worth worshiping, but also like who we are. Um, and I, and I want to get into that with us, and I want to get into that with you um, today. Um, so I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your love for us. Um, we thank you that you sent your Son um, to teach on the earth, um, to radically change our idea um, of who you are, of who we are, of what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, and we thank you for the pain you endured as you sent him uh, to die for us, Lord. Um, and Lord, as we... As we Hold a magnifying glass to that account this morning. Um, allow it to convict us in some way, um, even if it's different for each of us. Um, but open our eyes to something we may not have noticed about um, this story before. Um, illuminate a new dimension of your love for us uh, through our discussion of this passage. Um, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we left off with Jesus being convicted by the council. He gets taken to... Um, Pontius Pilate, the governor, makes his case one last time. Um, Pontius Pilate says, I'm not going to crucify him, but I'll beat the living snot out of him, and hopefully that will play, placate you, right? So Jesus gets taken away, brutally mutilated, torn apart, beaten, whipped, every amount of, of physical torture you can imagine. Gets brought back, says, no, he's still, the crowd says, no, he's still like him crucified. So Pontius Pilate says, fine, go crucify him. So that's where we're picking up with Jesus at this point. Jesus has just been sentenced to death, mercilessly beaten, maimed, mocked. He's out in public right now. Um, and now the time has come to execute him. So we're going to pick up with him in verse 21 of Mark 15. If you've got your Bible, uh, we're in Mark 15, um, or Bible app. As always, the words will be up on the screen behind me. But it says this, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. It was typical for those who were to be executed by crucifixion to carry their cross, or at least the, the one beam of it, to the place where the crucifixion would happen. But Jesus, at this point, is too ridiculously weak to do that. We hear from Mark. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him, Jesus, wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So basically, they've taken Jesus to this big old hill. Um, they're going to nail him to a wooden cross, and he's going to die up there. Uh, if you, again, if you've been a Christ follower for any amount of time, you already know that that's where this is leading. But like, there's one detail in this account that in all, is in all four of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. And for a long time, it confused me. Um, it took a, and it took a while before I looked into it um, as to why it's in there. Maybe it did for you, too. So in verse 23, we're told that Jesus' executioners offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but that Jesus didn't take it. And reading that, I'm just like, well, first of all, like, that's a weird thing to offer, because uh, I would wager that when you're about to die a terribly painful death, that's not like the time when you want to crack open a cold one with the boys. Um, but it's also a weird thing for the gospel authors to include, like especially Mark, because he's been pretty like name, rank, and serial number about telling Jesus' story so far, right? Very sparse, very low on details. Um, so why does he throw that in there? Right, well, as it turns out, wine with myrrh uh, was a mild narcotic, 
right? That would, they would sometimes offer to people about to be crucified. Um, and there are some commenters who suggest that it was just kind of a way to uh, keep the victims alive a little bit longer, um, keep, you know, sort of sadistically keeping the torment going for as long as they could go. Um, but there are others who suggest that in this cases, um, in other cases, it was just a very mild act of mercy um, in those final moments to sort of ever so slightly um, sedate the person about to be crucified um, and somewhat dull the pain. Um, so, with your permission, and I apologize for the next section, I'd like us to take a look at exactly what it was supposed to dull, um, and you can tell me if you think that that would have worked. All right. So we most closely associate death by crucifixion with nails being driven through the hands and feet of the person being crucified that are supposed to hang them off of a wooden cross. Like, that's kind of the expectation of how that works. Sorry. And that was definitely a thing that happened, right? But you don't get called the most inhumane, gruesome form of execution in human history without doing a little more than that. So specifically, we're hung in such a way that the arms and legs weren't, like, perpendicular with the crossbeam, like you see in a lot of artistic renderings, um, but rather you'd have nails through, like, your wrists or your arms, forcing them into a steep angle with the crossbeam. So you literally were hanging from it. Um, and then your feet would usually be nailed to either the sides of the crossbeam, like, either the sides of the vertical beam or to a foot plate. Um, in such a way that you would force your body into like a painful crunch or contortion. Right? And your muscles can only hold that position for so long. So eventually, gravity would do its thing, start to deepen the crunch, and you'd start having a hard time breathing. So someone on a cross would occasionally need to extend their bodies out of the crunch and into the nails that are already in there, right? To allow themselves to breathe, and that cause fatigue in the other muscles. Your body's trying to get oxygen all over to your tired muscles, and it starts to run out of the stuff for your brain. And on top of that, by the way, crucifixion was also meant to be humiliating. Um, it was used as a deterrent to make sure that other criminals were discouraged from following in the footsteps of these people. Uh, so all of this was happening outside, publicly. Victims were almost always crucified in the nude, so there was no protection from the elements. If it was cold, you were getting hypothermia. If there were predatory animals out there, like crows or like mosquitoes carrying deadly stuff, you got any of that? Lightning strikes during thunderstorms. Like there's a, there's a um, rumor that in Mel Gibson's movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, which was a filmic portrayal of the last few days of Jesus's life, that the actor playing Jesus actually got struck by lightning twice while they were filming the crucifixion sequence. Um, I don't know if that was like a rumor that was started by Facebook moms or something like that, but like. It illustrates that there were already like environmental dangers involved with this process um, before the Romans came in and made it even more horrifying. So if exposure to the elements or blood loss or hunger or thirst or the nerve shock of, you know, having nails driven through your bones and your ligaments and your joints didn't kill you, running out of oxygen or literally crunching yourself to death finally would. And for some victims, that could take as long as a week. It was an awful, abominable way to go. And Jesus didn't take the narcotic for it. He didn't despise the cross. He didn't dull any of the pain. He only accepted his call to die. He, or he not only accepted his call to die, but he leaned into it. He fulfilled it completely and without compromise. This wasn't sacrifice done on principle or just out of felt obligation. It takes a God-sized amount of unconditional love to sacrifice so fully. So let's talk about that stretch we did a little bit ago. So I was actually, so I was actually a little bit surprised um, that so many people held it for so long. Um, but for, like, for the people who sat up, what were those, some of the things that went through your mind, right? Maybe it was like, yeah, Bronson. Yeah, like blood rushing to your head. This is physically uncomfortable. My abs hurt. You might have been like, this looks really dumb. I feel stupid. What the heck am I doing, David? I didn't come here to do calisthenics. Just like say your piece and shut up and sit down. Maybe you were like, I'm old, and this stretch is doing serious damage to my back. So I'm going to sit up. Maybe you were like, I'm holding a baby, so it would be a really bad idea for me to do this stretch right now. All valid, idea, like, all valid reasons to not like, do the stupid thing that David's asking you to do. But like, how often do we use those same exact reasons 
to not sit with a friend in their pain. This hurts too much. This feels embarrassing. I've got, I've got babies. I've got other obligations. I'm too old for this. This is not my forte. I'm not able to love this person as well as I know I could because of some external reason. Like there, there are things we do, there are things we do that we can be doing to love others that hurt, that are painful. I, I would hope that none of us is asked to like literally lay down our lives uh, for somebody else. I mean, it's a noble thing to do. Hopefully, like, obviously Jesus is, is the one who is going to be able to sacrifice so fully in this particular context, but like, I'm talking to my guys right now, like, guys, have you ever sat with a friend while they're crying, like, especially another brother while they're crying? Super awkward, right? Like, we're really uncomfortable with that. Ladies, I know, like, y'all do a much better job of that most of the time than we do. Um, what, like, what are the things that are going through our heads, right? I'm not equipped for this. Um, I might actually start crying too, and we can't have that. <clears throat> Right? So as we go through this, like we think of, we think of all the like tinier ways that, that like we could be giving things up, right? It's one thing to just sacrifice ourselves and make ourselves uncomfortable, but what would it look like, I wonder, to like intentionally put ourselves into those situations? What would it look like to sit with a friend, even though I have homework that day, even though there's, you know, a new episode of my Netflix show that I want to check out, um, even though this person like has no personality and is probably just going to talk about anime the whole time, which that's that's me. If you could sit with me, that'd be great. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but like it's hard, right? And we and we think about some other sacrifices, right? God created us. He allowed us to turn away from him. He could have just said, nope, you're all just going to do exactly as I said. We could have been robots. He gave us free will. He gave us the desire to love him. That's the much harder way to do it, right? But he sits with us. He sits with us in our crying. He sits with us in our sinfulness. He sits with us in all the stuff that's going wrong. And Jesus shows us that in the most memorable way possible and models us and models for that. Us models that for us. Like I said, I've got it. So can we willingly say the world will call this abominable, but I'm gonna do it because I get to love others that way? This is gonna be a lot of like rhetorical questions today because it's gonna be super specific to you. Um, for students, it's gonna look like one thing. For professionals, it's gonna look like another thing. But I want to ask you, what pain can you sit with? that you would otherwise despise in order to love someone better? What can you lean into? And it's weird to think of doing something against your own interests, but like sometimes that's the best way we can love others. So Jesus takes this on willingly. It's hanging up there on a cross now. This intense culminating sacrifice is in progress. And we get a description of what else is going on around him. So let's go back into our passage, right? We're going to pick up now in verse 26. It says this, And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So one of the things that's interesting about Mark's account of this gospel um, is that if you look at the other ones that are presented in Matthew and Luke and John, those focus a lot more on what Jesus is going through specifically on the cross. You know, Luke gives us a little bit more of an idea of, so Luke features a conversation that Jesus had with the people to his right, being crucified to the right and his left. John goes through a little bit more about how he was crying out to God and, and the types of pain he was experiencing in the moment. Matthew gives a little bit more detail about the events leading up to Jesus finally getting nailed up there. 
Mark leaves Jesus alone, notably, which feels weird for a gospel story. Um, but we see where he focuses the attention instead on the people around Jesus, right? The account is on people mocking Jesus, having to finally come to terms with who Jesus is. And what's, and what's kind of interesting is, like, they have a very cool kind of neo, you know, proto-edgelord way about saying it, but they're almost seeming to will, like, be willing to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Right? They have to be kind of above it. But they're almost like, well, we understand that the king of the Jews is going to call out to Elijah. He's going to perform miracles. He's going to triumph over everything that gets put in front of him. So let's see him do that. We want to see him do that. So they do recognize that Jesus is here to fulfill some form of prophecy, that there's words written about him in scripture. Um, but what's interesting is what they, and what they miss is that they're looking at the wrong words. They're looking at the wrong words. These religious leaders are looking at words about the Messiah, their Messiah the political leader, the military leader, the person who's going to take an earthly idea of power and use it to just annihilate their enemies, right? But Jesus had some different ideas in mind, right? So if we even take a look at the account that we've read so far, right? So one slide mentions in verse 23... <laughs> Right, if we want to pull that one up. So Mark 24, verse 24 and 25. They crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. There was an intense reference. So there's a reference in Psalms, right? I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots written by King David many, many, many years before Jesus was even born, right? Looking at another one. Verse 23, the wine's back. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Foreshadowed again another psalm. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, I found none. Everyone moving against him. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink.
And then we turn to Isaiah 53, which if you were in small groups this week, um, I think your plans encourage you to, to look through Isaiah 53. We've been kind of returning back to that um, as a source of prophecy that Jesus would be fulfilling um, throughout these gospels. It's one of the servant songs in Isaiah. Um, and I didn't leave any, I didn't leave any, any sort of visual like standpoint for this, but if we go through this, all sorts of immediate references here, right? He was despised and rejected by men, verse 3. A man of sorrows unacquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Like, crushed, right? That is a super specific verb choice. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Verse 7. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Crushing again. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Did anyone notice there's a missing verse in Mark 15 when we were going over it? There's no verse 28, um, which in some manuscripts, some manuscripts include it. A lot of modern versions don't. Mark 15, 28, he was numbered with, with his transgressors. Mark knew exactly what this was going after. So what we understand about Jesus here is that he was faithful to the commandment God had, poured out for, that had put out for him through Scripture. Number one, he had a knowledge of what was written. Number two, he had the perseverance, the humility, the sense of obedience to carry it out to live up to it, what was said about him throughout the ages, because it had been put there by God the Father. And Philippians tells us that because of that obedience, he was exalted above all other names to the highest power. And although that exaltation belongs to Jesus alone, if we're asking ourselves, okay, Jesus was faithful to that which was written about him, well, I'd be curious to see um, go ahead, Brad. What does scripture say to be true about us? That's some rapid fire stuff for you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Created in the image of God. Next one, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's got, he's got a mission for us. Next, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Something that's been a huge um, encouragement for me um, personally for lots of different reasons. Next, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are called to the throne of grace to approach the throne of God with boldness. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. We can be illuminating in a culture that has gone lost. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before any of our affiliations on earth, we belong to the Lord. So if Scripture is the word of God, and we maintain that it is, and if Scripture justified the bodily suffering and death of the very Son of God, and we see that it has, and if that sacrifice of obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, has resulted in God highly exalting him, then we cannot afford to doubt that the things God has used his word to tell us about ourselves are true. And we also can't afford to live as if they're not. So, I mean... If you've been a Christian for a while, I don't know if your parents have ever sort of dismissively told you when you don't want to get up for church in the morning, like, Jesus died for your sins. The least you can do is get up and go to church in the morning. And, like, we've used that to weaponize, but, like, this should be such a powerful conviction for us, man. Like, if the Son of God can, can be obedient to the point of death on the cross, and we have all these awesome truths written by the same God about us, like, that gives me all sorts of boldness to claim them to be truth and to, and to live as if they are unmistakably true. 
So we figured out who Jesus is, but there's a bit we talked about last week. He's the son of God that hasn't been addressed yet, right? We, we've, we've left across the side that the, the this man who says he's the son of God has been crucified. He's just hanging there. He's crushing himself to death, looking immensely weak, getting mocked by all these people who, who were led to believe he might have actually been who he says he is. We've watched all these people, these religious leaders, these scribes, these publics, mock Jesus in complete ignorance of what he's doing. So they're seeking a physical sign at this point. Like, they, they want an earthly sign, like, come down, perform one last miracle. They're preoccupied with what their own idea of the Messiah is. But all they see up there is a weak, frail, beat-up man on a cross. Until this happens. And we're going to read in our passage. We're in verse 33 now. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. There it is, sour wine again. Put it on the reed and gave it to Jesus to drink, saying, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This, this, this interplay, you want to talk subversion of expectations, man. This was, like, this was like us watching any tentpole franchise in the last five years, right? These religious leaders are like, they're into this. They're like, okay, it's coming. He's going to show us that he's the Messiah. And he does. We know that. All these years after the fact. But look at how every expectation they have about who the Messiah is and who they believe Jesus to be is just shattered at this point. They're expecting him to call out to Elijah, who's the only one Jesus has seen speaking to during his time on the cross. God the Father. They see this weak man high, like hanging like at the end of his life right now, and he has the energy to cry out still. He utters a loud cry before ending, before it all comes to an end. And even the bit where, like, Jesus is going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, he does, right? Not the physical temple, but, like, the idea of a temple. Right? We read the curtain in the temple that separates the most holy place where God resides from the rest of the temple gets torn in two. The physical separation between us and the Father is gone. And so I'm looking at this centurion in verse 39. So a centurion, by the way, was sort of like the overseer of the execution. He was a, a military leader um, who would just basically be interested in making sure that Jesus and the other people who were crucified do in fact die. So he would have no reason to, to be interested in the Messiah. He would have no reason to feel any sympathy for Jesus. Um, but he looks at the way Jesus just knocks down everything the religious leaders are saying, cries out in his weakness, and cries out to the Lord himself, cries out to the Father God, and can't help but recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Even in his last moments, even at his weakest point, Jesus is claiming victory over our sense of power and authority and agency. Every expectation we have as a result of our culture, as a result of our sinfulness, God has said, no, I'm going to show you something different. At this point, people don't just believe, he, like, people don't just hear that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe it. They see what that means. And they're scared, right? The centurion is this powerful guy. 
he's not feeling any, he's still not feeling any pity for Jesus. He's like, what have we done? That's the military victory. Like, your enemies are scared. Not the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the Lord. So what do we do with that information, right? How insignificant does that make, like, our cultural assumptions? I don't know. Like, every time I feel, start to feel insecure about, about these sort of countercultural things that we do as Christ followers, and believe me, I do. Anyone who has talked to me for longer than five minutes can tell you I'm, like, obnoxiously self-aware about these things. But it's like, if God over the course of six hours can just destroy an entire worldview about who the Messiah is and about what victory over death and the enemies of the Lord is, then what do I have to worry about, you know, someone on the internet thinks about me? If I dare to quote a Bible verse or post a praise song. So here's where we're landing the plane today, friends. Again, the story's not over. We're only at the, the second to last episode. Next week, we're going to experience the sort of falling action of the Gospel of Mark. But as we've gone through this powerful account, we've asked ourselves two questions, right? Who is Jesus? What does God's Word tell us to, to be characteristically true about Jesus? And then as a response or a corollary to that, how can we take those characteristics and apply them to living a life with, like, and for Jesus? And this well-known, painful, yet powerful account of Jesus' crucifixion drives home a lot of really important answers to those questions. Answers that we've seen planted through the Gospel of Mark, but whose implications are illustrated really powerfully right here. Firstly, we learn that Jesus is the ultimate self-sacrifice. You can put the next letter. There it is. Thanks, Rod. We learn that Jesus is the ultimate self-sacrifice, and so we can sacrificially lean into difficulties. Again, I hope God this week will put on your heart what that difficulty is in your life right now. Maybe it's a friend you need to be reaching out to. Um, maybe it's an assignment or a job or a mission that you need to rededicate your faithfulness to. If you have come here today and you are not a Christ follower, maybe it's re-examining your beliefs about your own power and agency or human power and agency. If you are a Christ follower, maybe it's Re-examining your discomfort with other people's pain. Maybe it's re-examining your perspective towards pain that you don't appear that doesn't appear to be significant, right? Just because you don't feel the pain of your crying friend, maybe it's important to lean into it. Maybe because you don't feel the pain of a systemic injustice, it's important to lean into it and listen. Secondly, we learn that Jesus is faithful to the command put forth from his Father through the Scripture, and so we must be too. All of the powerful promises that are written about us in Scripture will hold true whether we hold fast to them or not. Um, but we cannot claim them to be true for ourselves unless we're living faithfully to them unless we are studying them, internalizing them, and comparing our actions and our thoughts and our mindsets towards who God says we are. And finally, we learn that Jesus is the Son of God, victor over human death and sinfulness. And so we should hold on loosely to our understanding of the world. Next week, when we talk about the resurrection, um, we're going to have a chance to examine that. Like, Understanding that the things that we're able to know and the things that we're able to understand are, are ephemeral, right? They're temporary. And living a life like Jesus is one that not only understands that, but embraces it. Right? If we follow the will of God, we don't need to worry about following the way of the world. And we don't need to worry necessarily about even understanding the way of the world. And so, friends, as we go uh, this morning, I encourage you to think these ideas through, right? Hopefully none of us are going to be asked to lay down our lives out of love for someone else. We can never fully embody who, what Scripture says we are, um, and we can never fully understand the mystery of the Son of God. But what we can do is 
we can grow towards that. We can be in the word. We can be in prayer. We could take that call on our hearts from Jesus, whether it's to go out on a mission to do something scary, whether it's to say for the first time, yes, Jesus, I believe you saved me, to take that next step of faith. And in doing that, we can learn a little bit more about sacrifice, um, and we can come to understand um, what the gospel is truly about. Let's pray.